Earnshaw's Magazine, which is a trade publication for children's fashion, still exists. Earnshaw's Magazine proclaimed this rule, pink is for the boys and blue is for the girls. And this rationale in 1918, in keeping with the, the gender norms of that era, was that pink was a more decided, it was a stronger color, more suitable for the boy, while blue, more delicate and dainty, they said, is prettier for the girl. That was the rule for a couple decades at least. And then after the Second World War, Rosie the Riveter traded in her factory blues for June Cleaver's pink apron and Mamie Eisenhower's iconic rhinestone-studded ball gown in pink probably had something to do with it that she trotted out in 1950. Maybe Jackie's pink Chanel suit, maybe it was Marilyn's little strapless number from Gentlemen Prefer Blondes. But by the 1970s and 80s, the new gender divide had been firmly established. Boys wear blue, girls wear pink, and now we get gender reveal parties gone spectacularly wrong, all based on this particular binary that would seek to divide the entirety of human society into just two genders firmly fixed, all based around which color gets fired out of the confetti cannon. <laughs> they say that it takes a big man to wear pink, and for centuries before Mamie and Jackie and Marilyn, rose or pink, was the color associated with this particular Sunday of the Christian year. It's why you sometimes see one pink candle, you can see it there, in an advent wreath along with the blue or purple ones. In some churches, they trot out their seldom used pink vestments on this Sunday. So instead of the very serious advent blue that we're wearing, you would see us in hot pink up here. The best I've got are my pink Gaudete Sunday socks, which you can see. <laughs> Still waiting on those pink vestments, but the socks are here. Every, every man ought to own a pair of pink socks. I will die on this hill, but I believe that to be true. Gaudete Sunday is, uh, comes from the Latin word for this day. Gaudete just means rejoice in Latin. It comes from those opening words from the letter to the Philippians that Christians have been reading on this day for centuries. Paul says, rejoice in the Lord always. And then he says, again, I will say it. Rejoice. Back in those days, in the Middle Ages, Advent, like the season of Lent, lasted for a full 40 days, quite a bit longer than our current custom. And like Lent, Advent was understood then as a, as a penitential season. Fasting was encouraged, darkness was common. These were, you know, the days of the, the, long, the lengthening nights. The readings of the season were all about judgment and hell and the end of the world. So it doesn't really surprise me that somebody decided that people needed a little bit of a reprieve from all the doom and gloom, and this mid-season break was instituted, an entire Sunday dedicated exclusively to joy. As Sharissa Simmons, Canna Sharissa, told our kids and families last week at Church of the Commons when she told the story of Advent, incidentally, Sharissa is one of the best preachers on this staff. I'm working to get her up here. That's not going to happen anytime soon. But if you go to Church of the Commons, you get to hear Sharissa preach, and it is always one of the best sermons I hear in a long time. Last week, when Sharissa was telling the story of Advent for the kids, she said that pink candle is a reminder. It's a reminder that there is always time for joy. There's always time for joy. I've been thinking about that a lot this week. John the Baptist takes a slightly different tack in today's gospel reading. You brood of vipers, he says. 
who warned you to flee from the wrath to come. The, the Baptist is not generally regarded as our most like joyful prophet. His message, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand, it does not on the surface of things seem to lend itself to rejoicing Sunday, Gaudete Sunday, the Sunday of the pink candle. It's, it's hard to imagine John the Baptist rolling up in a rhinestone ball gown hanging out with Mamie Eisenhower. But the Baptist is a pretty unusual guy. We might even say he's kind of a queer guy. And I mean that word in all of its definitions. John does not tick the usual boxes. This wilderness preacher clothed famously in camel's hair. His lifestyle is a very deliberate rejection of the norms of his society. He chooses to live his life on the margins. He chooses to preach from the margins. He sets up camp with his followers on the edge of the Judean desert on the banks of the Jordan River. He invites his adherents to opt out of the corruptions of what John would call a decadent society. He invites them to be dumped in the muddy waters of the Jordan River as an act of, I mean, radical conversion, right? An act of renunciation, a symbolic rejection of all of the decadence and decay and injustice that surrounds them. There are actually still people today who call John the Baptist their, their primary prophet and teacher. They're called Manichaeans. They're an ethnic religious group based in the Middle East, but now in diaspora. And they still hold to what they consider to be the original teachings of John the Baptist. Some of them still hang out on the banks of the Jordan River. They baptize not just once, they baptize over and over again. It's a ritual about staying connected to the source of light. Manichaeism is, is based in a kind of Gnostic dual understanding. There's the world of light and there's the world of darkness. And so baptism, their primary ritual, if you like, acts as a kind of a reminder. You belong to the world of light. You were created for light and your task in this, in this life is to, is to come back in a kind of continual repentance. You keep coming back to the water, you keep going down into it, you keep coming back up, repenting and returning once again to what you know to be true. Baptism is not a one-time thing if you're a Manichaeist. It's a lifestyle. So a number, number of years ago, on my first trip to the Holy Land, our little group of pilgrims went to the Jordan River. It's a thing you do when you go on pilgrimage. Some people bring back little vials of baptismal water from the Jordan, but the, the custom is to go to the Jordan River and renew baptismal vows right there, the original, you know, the, the original baptism site. And there's all kinds of like pretty touristy, shriney kinds of places set up to enable you to do that. And our tour guide told us, I can take you to one of those touristy places. You can compete with all those other groups trying to get down to the water to renew baptismal vows. Or he said, I can take you to this hidden cove on the Jordan. Nobody knows it's there except the locals. It's a place where you can actually walk down and see the Jordan River the way it used to be, right? No people, no buildings, just the river. He said, you can walk right into it. So the bus takes us as far as it can get. We turn off this road, this kind of dirt path then towards the river. We could smell it before we could see it. And there it was, this sort of natural, unspoiled Jordan River flowing beside us. A few of us kicked off our shoes. We skipped down onto this little beach to dunk our feet into these storied waters, only to come crashing to a halt because there, bobbing up and down in the current of the Jordan River, was a faded pink sofa that somebody had just thrown into the river. Waterlogged, disgusting, recognizably pink, uh, the detritus of contemporary life creeping uncomfortably into our little Jordan River fantasy. And so in all of our pictures from that day, there it is, right? You can't crop this thing out. The painted pink sofa is bobbing there in the background. It's just, it's just there. It's impossible to ignore. And it's actually become one of my favorite memories of this trip. A lot of us ended up actually taking our picture 
with the pink sofa in the Jordan River. I think that pink sofa is like joy somehow. It's just there, right? It's a plain fact, something that I can try to ignore, but it has this annoying habit of finding its way into the pictures despite my best attempts to neaten everything up and make it pretty. So we're faced with this, I mean, with this choice, right? We, we could have tried to drag that thing out of the river. We could have tried to get it off frame. Uh, it was pretty waterlogged. That would have been tricky. We could have ignored it, pretended it wasn't there. Or we can choose it. We can choose to deal with it, maybe even embrace it, give into it. It's going to win. That thing's so heavy with mud and filth, it's not going anywhere anytime soon. It's a simple, stubborn fact. And joy, in the Christian tradition anyway, joy is like that. Henry Nouwen says, joy is not the same as happiness. Joy is not a feeling. Joy is something, Nouwen says, joy is something we choose. As he talks about it, or as Paul talks about it, joy is like, it's existential. It's a response to my experience of knowing myself to be unconditionally loved by God. The knowledge, not in my head, but deep in my body somewhere, knit into the sinews of my bones, that nothing, not sickness, failure, emotional distress, oppression, war, or even death, nothing can take that love away from me. That's joy, Nowen says. Joy's kind of like that pink couch, bobbing up and down in the current, impossible to ignore, grinning from ear to ear with an infectious energy and a stubborn ridiculousness, as if to say, right, you, you are loved and there's nothing you can do about it. Right? No matter what you do, no matter who you are, no matter what happens to you, you already belong to God. There's nothing you can do to change it. And guess what? The joy's gonna win in the end. So you may as well stop fighting it now. Blue for boys, we were taught. Blue for boys and pink for girls. But that pink couch of joy, or the pink candle on the advent wreath, that's a kind of pink that takes me in a very different direction. Ever since the Second World War, the Nazi Holocaust, the Pink Triangle, has identified the sexual deviance of Hitler's Reich, and pink has been a color since then associated with queerness. What started out as a branding of death, right, the marker of shame and disgust, has been reclaimed as a badge of pride, a marker of joy, if you like, because that's what my people do. Right? My people, the Christians, we did the same thing with the cross 2,000 years ago, took a badge of shame and disgrace and turned it into our blazoning of glory. And also my people, the queer ones, the ones who don't tick the boxes, who don't fit the binaries, who don't map neatly onto either gender as they have been set up for us, but actively work to undermine the hackneyed old scripts we were handed about what it means to be a man, what it means to be a woman, a, a person created in the image of God. I gotta tell you, I've spent a lot of my life as, as a gay man afraid of my queerer, crazier, less accommodating siblings. They kind of freaked me out for a long time. The activists, the shouters, the ones who march in the pride parades and, you know, display their feather boas and their speedos as if to say, you know, look at me, look at me. They're so loud, they're so noisy, I used to think. And it turns out that's exactly what they were saying, right? Look at me, look at me, because the world mostly refuses to do that. Because you and I were taught in a million subtle ways that to be looked at meant death. I mean, I spent time in the middle school locker room. Maybe you did too. I know what it means when people start looking at you. And lots of us, I don't think this is necessarily a sexuality thing. 
I think a lot of us, gay and straight alike, figured out ways to avert the gaze, we figured out ways to hide, how to button it up and keep it under wraps and navigate a society that asks us to ascribe to certain norms and to certain rules and certain things that you're not supposed to say or do in public. You're the dean of a cathedral, Nathan. You can't do that. I have heard that before. I've heard it pretty recently, actually. <laughs> and then the queer ones come along. People like John the Baptist, clothed in his fabulous prophet drag of camel's hair and leather belts. Somebody who does not fit into Mamie Eisenhower's ballroom but would look right at home in the middle of a pride parade, marching down Burnside. John's whole outfit, his whole demeanor says one thing and one thing only, which is look at me, pay attention. He's one of our original queer ancestors, the prophet who called people to gently begin to detach ourselves from the death that hangs around us on every side. And people responded in droves to this guy, right? What should we do? That's their question for him. What should we do? And John's advice is super simple. If you have two coats, give one of them away. You don't need it. If you've got extra food, give it to somebody who doesn't have enough. If you're a tax collector, stop cheating people. If you're a soldier, stop extorting money from people. You may not be able to change the system. You can choose how you're going to engage it. You can choose how much you're going to let it define you. John says you have agency. Even those of you who are soldiers and tax collectors, you have a choice. You get to decide how you're going to treat other people. You get to decide how you want to live your life. You get to decide whether or not you're going to choose joy. They say it takes a big man to wear pink. Maybe it takes a queer man to wear camel's hair. But I think it takes a truly joyful person to step into the middle of that river, pink sofa and all, and learn how to swim in it. The sofa, like, you know, the sofa queers the Jordan, right? That's the original way to use that word. It messes it up, it ruins it. The sofa queers the Jordan, and then somehow it redeems it. What looks at the outset like the fly in the ointment turns out to be the most important thing of all. That's what my queer siblings have taught me. Once I stopped being afraid of them, once I stopped being afraid of my own queerness, right? The way in which I know myself to be a fly in the ointment, the pink couch in the middle of the river, the thing that doesn't, doesn't quite fit in and the fear that comes along with that sense. Every one of us knows a little bit of that fear. We're all a little bit queer when you get right down to it. Queerer maybe than the world sees anyway. And the Baptist's challenge to us, I think, is to stop living from the place of fear and hiding and to step out with joy into that river. It's the river of life to be baptized in it, maybe over and over again, to get your feet wet and embrace the mud and the muck, set aside for, if only a moment, all the stuff that the world has handed us, all the ways in which we let other people define who we are, all the things that we think we're probably gonna get in trouble for, and, and we might, you know? God knows, there's a, there's a lot to get in trouble for in this life. Congressman John Lewis said, sometimes it's good to get into good trouble. And I think the best trouble of all, the best and deepest kind of trouble, is the kind of trouble that brings you a deep and abiding joy. Because Charissa Simmons taught me well, there is always time for joy. <laughs>